Now, would you kindly turn with me this afternoon to the Gospel according to Luke and to chapter 16. We're going to read a very striking part of the scripture uh, from the lips of the Saviour. But from Luke chapter 16 and verse 1, I'm reading the King James Version. Jesus said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my law taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig, I to beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his lord's debtors unto him, and said unto the first, How much do you owe my lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. He said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly. I'll be drawing attention to those words in a moment. Take thy bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. Now the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the sons of this age, comment from Jesus, the sons of this age are in their generation wiser than the sons of light. And I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that... When it fails, they may receive you into everlasting habitation. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous money, who will commit to you to your trust the true riches? And if you have been if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or money. I've been asked to talk this afternoon about the temptations of an evangelist. And before I be even begin to talk about those, I want to make perfectly clear uh, to our minds what kind of evangelist we are talking about, because it is important. And the kind of evangelist I'm going to be talking about today is the man, or indeed the woman, who have given up every other preoccupation, their secular employment has gone, and now they have given themselves to evangelism. Now, that's the kind of evangelist we are going to be talking about. One who becomes what we call a peripatetic, or if you prefer the word, an itinerant evangelist. I don't like this word, but I will use it in order to define my terms. The professional evangelist. Now, that's the evangelist we are talking about, right? As I say, I don't use the word professional, but in order to clarify our minds, this is what we're going to talk about. And so I'm not, therefore, talking about people who evangelize. Some, it's incredible to me how some people evangelize for God in the evenings of their lives. And to me, they are some of the most wonderful people on earth. What they put in for God, as well as earning their daily bread at the school, or in the factory, or in the office. When I think of people like Montague Goodman, and Laidlaw of New Zealand, and uh, Luturno, and when I think of people like Lindsay Glegg, it is incredible. I think of people like Werner Wright. What these people put in for God in the evenings of their lives. Now, be that as it may, and all praise to them, and all glory to God, we are not talking about that evangelist. We're talking about the evangelist who is now an itinerant evangelist. And by being specific about what kind of evangelist we're talking about, we can then be specific about the temptations. Otherwise, uh, temptation assails us all. 
But we are here to talk about the specific temptations of a specific person. So we do not mean evangelizing in general, but being an evangelist in particular. So now, if you today say, but Mr. Shepherd, or David, I'm sure you'd like to call me, uh, I'm not one of those... Uh, but maybe one day I shall be. Indeed, it's stronger than that. One day I'm hoping I will be an evangelist such as you describe. Then what I say to you this afternoon will be relevant. So now, this is what we're going to look at. The temptations of an evangelist. And I begin this afternoon by telling you that there is a popular, almost a cliche explanation of the temptations of the evangelist. Under the title, Fame... Finance females. Now, who said that first? I've never found out. I wish it had been me. But it makes sense that one of the obvious temptations is fame, finance, females. But if there's a woman here this afternoon and you say, but pardon me, Mr. Shepherd, I am feeling that I'm an evangelist, then I say to you, it'll be fame, finance, and fellows. And in addition, fussing. Fussing. Because whereas men are feeble, women fuss. Now, I've made enemies well into my talk. Uh, so, let me tell you that that last point is by no means a serious contribution to the talk this afternoon. But this is a fact. And don't you think because we've laughed at it that those are of no consequence. They're a very good summing up of the temptations that apply to a, an itinerant evangelist who leaves his home. Fame is one of them. By which I mean this. A, a necessary part of evangelism is publicity. God hasten the day when the church of God can work without publicity of the poster and pamphlet kind. If ever it happens, it will be one of the best things that ever happened. Where the best publicity is the preparedness of the church to receive an evangelist. Certainly. But it's part of the business. I've had my name over roads, you see, and over cities in Cardiff. The only hope campaign. There's a fine title. And then there was a picture of me and my team. The only hope campaign. <laughs> and behind there was an atom bomb exploding. <laughs> the imagination of the church is, is laughable really. And now it, it's an adjunct, it's an adjunct of evangelism that there's going to be publicity. And before you know where you are, you see, you think you are someone. And uh, I don't suppose any of us will reach those pinnacles of, of publicity that Billy Graham, dear Billy Graham, has reached, or uh, Louis Palau, and so on. Maybe not. But it's amazing how a man can start to parade. The beginning of greatness is to be small. The increase of greatness is to be less. The crown of greatness is to be nothing. And if you're working for someone who made himself of no reputation, would you kindly bear it in mind when you suddenly appear in the publicity and uh, people will begin to give you special attention. Fame. Very few people survive fame. Very few film stars supply, survive fame. Very few pop stars survive fame. Very few football stars survive fame. Very few politicians survive fame. Very few Christians who have been pushed into the work too soon survive fame. I'm so grateful that Nicky Cruz has survived the, 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 the untimely fame in one sense. Some people have been pushed in because they were drug addicts, they got converted, and a silly church paraded them before the world and it got to their heads. I know of one who committed suicide after addressing crowds. He was one of my students and uh, said one day, I don't want to be sitting here learning. He said, I'm addressing crowds. And he knew nothing. I said, you'll run out of steam if you've only got your story. People want something bigger than your story. They want the truth of God. And he left thinking that he knew it all. And the church foolishly used him. And he was burnt out like a Marilyn Monroe, flung like a moth to the flames. So, be careful. Very few people survive fame. Very few people survive fame. The most dangerous commodity in the world. And then, of course, finance. Now, the Bible, Jesus said that they that preach the gospel must live of the gospel. Amen. But the gospel preaching is not your living. 
It was going to an office or a school or a factory was your living. You didn't give up that living to have another living. You gave that up in order to preach the gospel. But of the gospel you are entitled to live. But it is not your living. God has never made me rich, but he's never allowed me to be poor. And I'm glad, I, I, I praise God for Billy Graham. Billy Graham's got a clean slate about finance. And by the grace of God, so have I. I've never left churches with big bills to pay because of my extravagant evangelism. I've run crusades for as much as ten pounds for a fortnight. Uh, because I went out, I went out to work for the people. But you be very careful about finances. I don't think any of us are in great danger. <laughs> Church is hardly likely to be over generous. It was only in Moses' day that he had to say to the congregation, Please don't give. You're giving too much. Did you know that? That'll be the day when the treasurer gets up in the church and says, Please don't put any money in the boxes. We've got too much. They could only say that under law. They don't say it under grace. <laughs> somebody, somebody, one, somebody once said that personal salvation should be purse and all. And I'm afraid it isn't, it isn't always the case. But now, just watch the finances. Uh, and uh, if you are not, says Jesus, if you're not honorable in that which is another's, if you're not honorable in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? You don't come into your own if you're dishonest about other people's things. And then, of course, females. Now, there are women, and forgive me, ladies, for speaking. I mean no disrespect to you, but there are women. Once a man has got a bit of popularity, he becomes such an attraction. I don't know why it is. As one girl said to me in America, in, in Wales, you're famous, you are. Another girl said to me in America, you're an orator. Now, nothing came of it, I can assure you. But, you know, if you're an orator, somehow or other, if you're well known, they set their sights on popular people. Women set their sights. And you've got to be very careful. I will tell you two things the Lord has taught me. Number one, says Paul, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And he's not giving advice to husbands when it's too late. No, no, it's a, it, it, it's a principle. What I see is not what tempts me, it's what I touch. And God convicted me years ago. Simple thing, simple thing. But I would shake hand with a woman or a girl. And I sometimes found that that sh handshake that need only have lasted for two seconds would last for four. God convicted me. You want to make that handshake last a little longer than that. Because like the Polynesians, who've got physical ways of describing how willing they are, you can convey little impulses. Quickly how hopeful people can read signs to which they're not entitled. Take a rule from me. And it is this, from the word of God rather. It is not good for a man to touch a woman. And I take that literally as an electric impression can be made on you by the touch of a woman what God has made soft and tender as opposed to us uh, hairy and hard men uh, I know that sounds a bit tri trivial but be careful and secondly it is normally right not to counsel women at all in your crusades but there are exceptions definitely exceptions to the rule and uh, I have led many men and women and women many women to the Lord but you be very careful. But if you are going to counsel them, here's the second thing God convicted me of many years ago, of carnal curiosity into the state of the woman you're dealing with. You have no right to ask her to tell you what she did. Now, there was a time in my life when I thought, if she's going to come clean, I'm going to get properly saved, then she's going to be willing to be honest about her condition, which includes telling us what she did. God showed me, you are wrong. You will hear things that can start off a train of thought in your mind. God only knows where it will end. You go and read Father Chinicky's book on the Roman Catholic Church. The, the priest, the woman, and the confessional. And he says, the power of the Roman Church is in the confessional. No wonder they ban Freemasonry, because it's a secret society. And the Church of Rome doesn't want secrets. Their power is to know where you were on Saturday, who you were with. And we don't have any tuck with a confessional. May I give you a strong word of advice? 
there is a delicacy about dealing with women, it's better to leave it in somebody else's hand. Because I heard such a sad case of a woman whose husband was away, and the pastor went to visit her, and of course she, she opened her heart to him. And the silly woman, well, she didn't do it intentionally, happened to tell the minister how much she missed her husband. I don't need to say any more. And nor will I tell you what the tragic consequences of that was. You have no business to know exactly what people did and who they did it with. And I make it a rule, don't ever tell me about anybody else involved in anything that's wrong. If you tell me about them, I want them to be here when you tell me. And I also say to them now, I don't want you to tell me anything that's not necessary. We're going to talk together. But for young, some young people to be listening to a young girl saying uh, how terrible she'd been. I'm not saying that they haven't said it to me. The very young may have said it to me as an older man, feeling that the gap made it safe. And some of the things they say can be terrible. A girl said to me in a youth club in Battersea a long time ago, I had hair in those days, I may have been a bit dishy, I don't know. But she came up to me, she said, uh, mm, you're rather nice, she said, would you like to take me out? Fourteen she was thereabouts. So I, I don't have to tell you what I did. I certainly didn't take her out and I let her know what I thought of what she'd said. But uh, you be very careful. Temptations of the evangelist who is going from home to home and place to place. Very good whoever summed this up. Fame, finance and females. So now, that's uh, what I would call a staple answer to the question. But I've got some other things to say here this afternoon, which I won't say are deeper, but they're less obvious. Now, one of the temptations of an evangelist is to be full-time in theory, but not full-time in fact. This is terribly important. You see, when you say that the Lord has called you to full-time service, amen. Uh, I, somebody said here, I think it was dear Edwin, that the laborers are few, the laborers are few. And when he sees the multitudes in the cities and people so loath to serve them, certainly there's need. But now let's be very careful about something. If you are going to call yourself a full-time evangelist and you've been given the privilege of leaving the drudge and the grind of getting up at seven and not coming home till six, which is fine, it's got to be done, then you be careful that at the end of the day, you're a full-time evangelist in name, but you are nothing of the kind in practice. Better to go back to your job and serve God in the evenings. Now, this is a terrible temptation. And before very long, you begin to feel, oh, this is rather cushy. You know, they've got a criticism of ministers, do workmen in Wales. They can't level it at me, but I've heard, it say, heard them say, they call a minister the two-shift man. See? The two-shift man. Sunday morning, Sunday evening. And then golf and fishing, hunting, shooting and fishing, the rest of the week. Now, a minister worth his salt can easily shoot that down. They can't level that at me. But you see, this is the concept. And I will say this to you. When I heard a man say, my son says he's an evangelist, he doesn't get up till 12. He doesn't talk to us in the house. But when he gets to the platform, he's the life and soul of the party. And his guitar and him flopping all over the place. And he said, but we, we, we don't know. He said, if that's evangelism, I said, pardon me. I said, it is not evangelism. That great and saintly Baxter of Kidderminster, he said, I greatly lamented when I heard the artisan about his work in the morning before I was about the business of my master. It grieved me much when I heard the milk being delivered and I had not been awake in the things of God. There's a tremendous possibility. And I will say something else to you. If you don't find uh, scope for a full-time service, you'll get disillusioned. And you begin to feel, what's the point? And before very long, not only will you go back to secular work, but you suspect all the other people who are working for God, that they were the way you were. I plead not guilty. There's a fellow here from Wrexham. He was talking about a crusade we had there. 
What you don't know, dear brother, but I'll tell you now, that at the end of a crusade in Wrexham, a man came to me and said, Mr. Shepherd, can I talk to you? I was in the vestry at the time. All the chairs had been taken from every room to put in the main building, and there was such a crowd there. So there were no chairs. And this man came in, he said, I want to talk to you. I said, sir, if you've got to talk to me, I'd be delighted. But if you don't mind, I said, do you mind if I kneel at this table? I was so exhausted, I couldn't stand. I had to kneel at the table while he talked to me. Because we had preached from morning till night, morning till night. And if people didn't come to us, we went to them. Now, I'm not asking anybody to put in that kind of payload. What I am saying is this. Wouldn't it be awful for people who are not so-called full-time and the, and the work they put in for God? And a man gets up at twelve. Do you know a friend uh, in Wales said to my brother-in-law, he says, Tom, he said, your brother-in-law, meaning me, he's mad. Uh, whether I was mad to be his brother-in-law, I don't know. But he said, but he, but he said he's mad, he said. He said, we, he, he, he came here, he said, we've had speakers for years, he said. And they come, and they preach in the evening, and then they go to bed, and they have breakfast, and then they sit at the at table, they walk down to the town, they pick up the newspaper, they come back, they have lunch, and then they pop down to another part of the town, and then they come back, and they have tea, and then they pick up their Bibles for about ten minutes, and then in the meeting, this ministry. And now I won't tell you who the ministers were, they were a special brand, I admit, but he said, and that was it. But he said, your brother came here, he had us going everywhere, he, he, he got us into schools, we were down the mines, we were, he said, he's mad, he's mad. I am not mad, most noble Festus. No, to me no other, no other work justified it. When I was in the sheet mills, I was working very hard there, I had a good job, good money, but I felt I can't do all I want to do uh, and, and do this. Somebody said once to, to William Carey, how could you do so much for God and cobble shoes? Oh, he said, I only cobble shoes to pay expenses. He said, my work is serving God. And some people like that, but there comes a time when you can't do that. I've got to be available for the church of God from quarter to nine when schools open until quarter to twelve, when youngsters finally go home. The last crusade that I conducted down in Southend-on-Sea, before I came into a church in Gorsinan, somebody sat down and worked out. I didn't, it never occurred to me, I just did it. He worked out how many hours of each day I was evangelizing, on the job of evangelizing, and he calculated that it was sixteen and a half hours every day. Now that, and I know it is true because it was from early morning till late at night in every department. Don't ask anybody to do all that. In fact, it would be awful if you were always out with no time to be in, always out, no time to be with your family. Not asking for, for fanaticism. But I will say one of the temptations is to suddenly find, oh, this is rather good, isn't it? I'm onto a good thing here. If you're evangelizing, you're not onto a good thing. It's a full-time work. Samuel Chadwick said something to his students, which is the most profound statement a man ever made. Samuel Chadwick, godly principal of Cliff College. He said to his students, you cannot be an evangelist and anything else. You cannot be an evangelist and anything else. I have failed in my life to be anything else. They've, they've offered me big houses to make money by having rent uh, through, from, the, from the tenants. I've been invited to be the director of this and that with a big car and so much per year. Every time something has come along, never been allowed, never felt free in my heart. You cannot be an evangelist and anything else. One day God showed me something very striking. In the prophets it says, Son of man, son of man... Can anything be done with the wood of the vine? Can you do anything with the wood of the vine? And those of you who know a vine will know how gnarled and twisted it is. There's nothing long enough to make even a pencil stub. It's all twisted and gnarled. And he said, can you do anything with the, with the wood of the vine? You know what the answer is? Nothing. Nothing. Jesus said, a, a man is cast forth as a vine. You can do nothing with the wood of the vine. Meaning what? That the only thing that the wood of the vine can do is bear fruit. 
But if he doesn't bear fruit, he doesn't do anything else. And God challenged me. David, are you prepared to be a Christian and nothing else? And nothing else. Now that was a great challenge to great challenge. And I would say this to you, this is, this is one of the temptations of the evangelist to suddenly find he's answerable to nobody. Now there was one thing to be said for working with the movement. When I worked with the NYLC and I worked with the movement for world evangelization, there was something to be said for it in that we were accountable to the, to, to the, to the committee. And they, they did want to know where we were. But you see, before you know where you are, a full-time evangelist or a full-time worker is answerable to no one. He's a law to himself. He up any hour of the day and uh, do as he likes, go as he likes. Some people really do think that you go hunting, shooting, fishing, waiting for the evening meeting. Evening meeting for me can often be the least opportunity. During the day, I've reached far more people than I reach of unconverted people at night. So now, let me say to you in love, you are needed... You are needed, but be honest. Be honest. And if you've been tempted to glibly feel, I'm going to be an evangelist, and unconsciously it's the glamour of being a Billy Graham that was really an attraction to you, think again. Think again. I got a man to come to take a campaign for me, a crusade. Now I'm talking now as an evangelist who had gone in to be the pastor of a church. And I invited him to come to run a special crusade, actually among young people, children, young people. And uh, he came. But he, he phoned me to say, David, I wanted to introduce a certain young man into the work. He's a good singer. He's got a good story. And he hasn't been saved all that long. And I'd like him to come. I said, fine, let him come. I said, but don't forget, I said, at your expense, not at ours. We've invited you, not him. Because he was admitting that he was going to be a part of their setup. Well, anyway, that was fine. And we would welcome him. We put a big house at their disposal. We filled the cupboard with food. We then got this man's wife to come because they hadn't been married very long. So I said, oh, I said, if he's only a, a newlywed, let his wife come as well and let her look after them. So we were certainly generous. We were not being stingy. Well, now, he came. Do you know that the whole week that he was there, that man sang seven times, and he sang one of those songs three times, and then when he sat down in the chair, he lolled in the chair with his feet out there. And he thought he was an evangelist. What a farce. Now, you call that evangelism? Sure. <laughs> the terrible thing is that at the end of the day, they gave me a bill. Fancy an evangelist giving the church a bill. I've never given the church a bill in 50 years, 48 years. Uh, but anyway... I couldn't believe my eyes. I said, what a farce. What a farce. And then some people were in the mines that morning. You know, during the Welsh Revival, the miners were in the mine from early morning till the evening. And then they found time to be in church till three in the morning. Uh, with the tears making marks in their faces, as in the days of Wesley. Gentlemen, I do plead for, be real now. Don't create a bad reputation of being somebody who has found a nice little patch. I have not found it. I'm sure Roger's not found it. I know that Edwin has not found it. We have not found it that kind of easy thing where we can do things. Now, I've got a big home. I've got, uh, no, not a big home, but I've got a home. I've got a big garden. It's a half an acre, but when I'm digging it, it's a full acre. <laughs> but the thing is this, you see, that I've I got to look after my home. A, a bad, untidy garden is a bad witness. If you've got beds and bikes in your garden, don't preach the gospel to your neighbors. It's a bad witness. So I, I, I really want to keep the place tidy. I'm not saying that I don't find time. But I always felt guilty when I was cutting the grass, and yet it had to be cut. I felt there was something else I should be doing. In fact, God had to rebuke me in the end because I wasn't even thinking of a house for my family. We were in digs. We had one baby and one was on the way, if I remember correctly. And it, it never went into my thick head. What about a house? <laughs> <laughs> but God, but God, in his mercy, he stabbed me awake. And the result was, I got one of the nicest houses, not the biggest. And, and believe me, I had to work on it. 
No man could ever do twice what we've done in a lifetime. We took it from being a hovel to being nice, but only by getting up at six in the morning and working till eleven that night and then off to evangelize and then back. I remember fainting as I picked second-hand bricks on a dump to build our bathroom. Yes, and I feel that's right. That's right. If you think you're going to have a nice little cushy job, then you've got the wrong motive. And what is more, you've got the wrong program. Now, you may find it difficult in some certain situations to fill out your payload. I admit that. I've gone to some places where the situation is such, it's crying out for daytime activity. But you come with me to some parts in Wales, and when the people come to church at night, you can see them coming down the hills with lanterns. And no lights there. They come through the fields. No electric light in the church. The only heating is in the floor. And on a grid, if you come too early, you suffocate because of the smoke. That doesn't lend itself to late night specials. In a town, I've gone out at 10 o'clock at night to open air meetings. We've got all the drunks in the squares of Wales until 11 and 12 at night singing, All hail the power of Jesus' name. <laughs> Certainly, some situations don't lend it. In which case, seals you've got your Bible and your study with you. And that you're going to get to know your book better. Fine. Call the people together to pray during the morning. When I was down in Cornwall, it didn't lend itself to a big outreach, but I said, right, we'll meet together. And in that prayer meeting, we had Bible ministry. One thing, I, all I want to say is, one of the temptations of the evangelist is suddenly to feel, oh, I can do as I like, as little or as much as I like. No, you can't. Your stewardship will be called in question. Now, that's the first temptation. Now, here's the second temptation that an evangelist may have to think about. It's his cardinal attempts to justify his calling, or if you like, to confirm his image. Now let me explain to you what I mean. When you turn up as an evangelist, it's quite right, when I talk about the authority of the evangelist later, I will emphasize this. You are turning up as a man, you've got a certain equipment, you've got a certain attitude, you've got a certain skill, and you're going to try to use it to God's glory, and they are good there and then. The temptation will be to resort to carnal methods to justify that expectation. Well, he's an evangelist, so look out. Things are going to happen. And then you're going to begin to indulge in cheap gimmickry in order to justify. I tell a committee when I meet them, I reserve the right to make no appeals in this crusade. I am not going to make appeals because you're expecting me to make appeals and you're expecting me to have results. I said, if God is working, I'll make appeals. But if God is not, I reserve the right not to. But there's a danger. I know of evangelists. They'll do anything. They'll do anything to get results. What I call decisionitis. And you've got to be aware of it. What are you doing? What are you doing? Now, the Lord Jesus told a parable one day and all... Christ's parables are a profound analysis of human nature, of human experience, of human behavior. Jesus had that wonderful way of penetrating. Now, listen very carefully, if you will, to a, to a parable in Luke. There was a certain man, and they reported back to his boss that he was not fulfilling his stewardship. And that is to say, he was not a good servant, and he was not a good administrator of the affairs. So the boss called him in and said, you are going to become redundant soon. And uh, he was going to be sacked. You may no longer be a steward. Now this steward says, what am I to do? And these two words, one of them is good, the other one is bad. I cannot dig. I hope nobody will ever say about an evangelist, that chap is good for nothing. Except standing in the pulpit there. Do you know how to dig? Do you know how to mix concrete to make a path in your church? <laughs> There's no dignity. If you're a real worker for God, you don't stand on your dignity. It's how you cut the grass in the church and there's we who dig the ditches to drain the place. Some big healthy fellows there. They don't see, they don't have the vision. I told some young men in the church one day, if I did as little for Jesus Christ as you do, I'd never tell a soul I was a Christian. I wouldn't insult him. Do so little. Now, this is beside the point, except that he says here, yeah, I cannot dig, I cannot dig. I know digging in the east is a problem. I've been out to India. I tell you this, digging in the east is a problem. You've got to pour water on the ground before you can dig it. But that's not, that's not the point. He says, what am I to do? 
I'm going to out of, of this cushy job as a steward. Now, he says, I know what I'll do. I am going to curry favor with those who are in debt to my master. Then when I get the sack, I'll be able to say, well, I did you a favor. Now you do me a favor. Eh? I scratch your back, you scratch mine. So he goes to one man and says, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred, a hundred, what did he say? A hundred measures of oil. He said, now sit down quickly. You notice that? Quickly. Now that's an interesting word. Don't, th don't think, don't, don't bother. Quickly now, come on now, come on. Quick results, instant results. Sit down quickly. And you write, and I'll put it in the books, that you owe fifty. He said, oh, another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write down eighty. I'll pass them through the books. And then, of course, when I get the sack, you know, uh, I did something for you, you do something for me. Now the master commended him. But I think this is irony from Jesus. The master may have said, well, uh, you got me something anyway. You got me something. I may not have got everything, but I got something. So you might have been grateful for this duplicity. And then this man, Jesus said, the children of this generation are wiser than children of light. Unconverted people seem to be more ingenious in promoting any causes than we are. But then he said this to him. Make friend of your ma men, uh, uh, to yourselves of the mammon of righteousness, that when it fails, you may be they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Pure, undiluted irony. No bank balance will receive me into eternal habitations. Now, what is the story here? This man asked for less than his master deserved in order that he might come off well in the transaction. Did you notice? Let me say that again. How much do you owe my master? hundred. Write fifty. How much do you owe my master? hundred. Write eighty. He demanded less. And they owed his master to his own advantage. Now what you are in great danger of doing is you're going to, you, you are going to see that you are recognized and that you are justified by carnal means. I'll give you a good example of it. Good example. I know of a man who seems to come into every crusade in a chariot. He wants the, I say past tense, past tense. He wanted the best hotels. And if he told one lady because they didn't put him in a hotel, he had to sleep in somebody's house. He said, I shall expect you to change the sheets every, night, every day. You know an evangelist saying that? You'll never know who he is. You'll never learn from me. I let the atheist pull the church to pieces, but I'm illustrating a fact. But oh, he wanted this. He came in there as if to say, well now you see, I'm an evangelist. And people who already believe about me, what I'll make them believe about me. So I'm coming in on this level. He didn't realize that he didn't come to minister, but to serve, to, 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 to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve. And then he insisted that his wife should have flowers sent to the hotel every day. Yeah, yes, I, I know it's, it's, it's so ludicrous. What's he doing? What's he doing? At the expense of his master, he's, he's promoting his own security. I can tell you of an evangelist who was asked by a man, will you come and preach for us? He said, indeed I will. So it was arranged. It wasn't a big city-wide crusade, but he was going to preach somewhere. And then as an afterthought, he said, by the way, he said, how many people do you think will be at the service I'm going to take? So the man told him, oh, he said, 150, 150. Oh, he said, I can't come and address an audience of 150. It wouldn't be good for my image. <laughs> what do you mean image, eh? I know somebody whose image was so marred. that men turned away. Because he was despised, they despised him. I say, I say. Now, I've always liked to win respect. And indeed, I'll tell you, when again we speak of authority, there is an authority in an evangelist's life. But he's not coming in here with the bell sounding. Now, let me be honest with you. There are some men who are worth promoting on that level. And I'll tell you who one of them is. Dear, beloved, honorable Billy Graham. 
Billy Graham is, a, to me, a great man. I've worked with him many times. How God has preserved Billy is a miracle. With all that scrutiny, they can't find him. They tried, they tried. When he was having his greatest time in Los Angeles, when Billy Graham burst out upon the world and film stars were converted, who should come down to because of this great news? And that, 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 that Jim Vouch was converted, and Red Harper was converted, and Stuart Hamblin was converted, and film stars were getting converted. Of course, they were coming in, like Elvis Presley and Lulu, uh, jumping on the bandwagon. There were records to sell now to an to unconverted world, and to the Christian world also. And Jane Russell came down. They fought a two million dollar case in Howard Hughes to get her film Wicked Lady shown. It was the first time that a woman's bust had been the drawing point for a film. I'm sorry to offend you, although how can I be offended in this dirty age? And Jane Russell came down, you see. Her father was a Presbyterian minister. And she said, she put her hand out. She said, well done, Billy, she said. Well done. But before her hand could touch Billy, Billy said, Jane, he said, take your hand off me. He said, don't you touch me, he said. Don't you touch me. Give up that wicked business. Now, Cabra, man there, Daily Mirror, Sunday Mirror, Sun, Private Eye, Cabra, Jane Russell and Billy Graham. Oh, Billy's wife uh, has kept him from a lot of trouble, I can tell you. He said, my shins are blue, black and blue under the table, he said. <laughs> Where Ruth had kicked him more than once when he was being drawn. Because Billy is so lovable, such a, so forgivable. But how God has kept that man is very wonderful. And yet, uh, in terms of, of pride, he's so humble. So humble, I tell you, I know he's humble because he bites his nails. Uh, when I saw his nails, I said, Billy, bite, bite your nails. A man who bites his nails must be humble. <laughs> He's full of anxiety. As you know now, Billy Graham, yes, yes, yes. When Wembley Stadium was filled to the roof, Jerry Bevan still spent £2,000 on publicity for Billy Graham. And Lindsay Glegg says, but Jerry, the place is full. He said, I know, he said, but we want to keep Billy's name in front of the public. And for once I would make a concession. He's such good copy. He's such a good commodity. He's so faithful, so loyal. Whatever some of his critics say. Some of the Calvinists tear him to bits and I say to them, I meet his converts all over the world. I never meet yours. And it's true. I meet his converts. I never meet theirs. And so I say this to you, that uh, there is an exception. But... Uh, I'm not here to, to vindicate. I'm going to work the best I can. I used to be in bondage when I thought I had to come in uh, oozing personality. Set of the jaw. And when I shook hands, people winced, you know. <laughs> I, I always felt I had to come in some, something big, something big. I've learned. Let the Lord give results. When people start to get saved and converts begin to praise the Lord in the middle of a church of fatty daddies who are backslidden, that'll revive a church, I can tell you. And when they say, oh, days of heaven upon earth, yeah. We've no right to come in and, and say, oh, I've got to be careful that my good name is not to be littled. Oh, the people who have fought for recognition, fighting for recognition, I've only once had to rebuke a man in the whole of my life on a team, on a team. He said, I can preach as well, you know. I said, why? I said, are you coveting to be up in the pulpit there? You're going to stand between the living and the dead and for half an hour, you've got the whole of eternity to be settled in people's lives and you want to be the one who's up there and help yourself. I said, you can take my place any time you like. There's a temptation. You see, a man has become something. He's now the center of attention. And in one sense, rightly so. You are asking a, a town to come and hear a man. Come and hear Roger. Come and hear Billy. Come and hear, uh, come, come and hear David Shepard. And come and hear Dick Saunders. I don't quarrel with that. But far away from the temptation of just fame and finance and females is this deeper one. So you want to watch that. Now here's a third temptation. By the very nature of your work, which is to travel to all sorts of places, one of the great temptations of an evangelist is to, is to tread on 
the local situation and to ignore the local situation and unconsciously to despise the local situation. There's a church in the locality. There are a few churches in the locality. And because of his work is a, is a specific work, the tendency is to ride roughshod over all the other work that's already there. And uh, sometimes he's invited by offbeat Christians, if you're not careful. When people invite me, sometimes they invite me to go to their house fellowships. I say, have you split from another church? Why did you split? Was there a good reason for your split? You want me to come and justify what you've done? You've got to be very careful. I want to honor, I want to honor the local church. Now, I don't say I compromise. But I've seen this happen again and again. Oh, never mind about them. I went to Newport once. The young people wanted me for a crusade, you see. And the young people in Newport, bless their hearts. Uh, they, they, they wanted a crusade, and so they sent for David Shepherd. So I turned up in their committee meeting, preparation meeting. I looked at their papers and said, I said, where are the names of the local ministers, young people? Oh, they said, we haven't asked them. I said, okay, this campaign stops now. I will have another committee in a fortnight, and then I want some of the local ministers here. So when I arrived the next week, a fortnight, I looked again, where are the names of the ministers here? Oh, they said, uh, well, I said, did you ask them? And do you go and ask them, we're going to have a crusade, we'd like you to join in, what an insult. You don't do that to ministers who've been there for 15 or 20 years, whether they be evangelical or nuts. Now, this can be a great temptation. You see, you're going to do something good. But you don't do it by ignoring what God has been doing in the place for a long time. Let me give you a good example now. I was invited to a place in Monmouthshire, a very small place to conduct a crusade, and I was invited by a man who had been kicked out of his church. And I'll be honest with you, the church wasn't altogether to blame. Uh, there are two ways of preaching, you know. One is, I'll tell them. And the other is say, what do you think about this? You know, there are some people like that. Jesus told a man one day, don't tell anybody what I've done for you. Don't tell anybody. But he went everywhere telling them. He said, I'll tell them. Result, Jesus could no longer enter the city. Mark 1. Could no longer enter the city. Because this fellow blabbed, see. And some evangelicals, they haven't learned the difference between convicting people and antagonizing them. Some people... They, don't, they think they've convicted the people. All they don't is antagonize them. So you see, he was out of the church. She said, David, come and have a crusade. So I said, his name was David as well. I said, but David, I said, where do we meet? And who does the publicity? And who's going to be the starting off of the crusade? I said, you can't have a crusade in the air like that. I said, what about the local people? Oh, well, the Lord will show us. <laughs> the Lord has already taught me that that was daft. So you see now... I said, what about the Anglican church? I said, oh, he said, oh, we're going to from him. Have you heard uh, the evangelicals talk about them? They're dead. I said, have you ever been in a church on that Sunday to hear them talking? I said, no, how do you know they're dead then? I went to preachers' churches on Sunday to hear them, and I came in late for them not to notice me. And then I listened to them in their own pulpits on Sunday talking to their people. And I got a few surprises. But anyway, that's beside the point, too. I said, what about the church? Oh, you should, you know, you them, would you? And it implied he didn't want them either. I said, David, you don't mind. I'm going down to talk to the rector. Oh, you know, if you want to go. I went into the house of the rector. I, I said, sir, I've been invited by some Christians to come to your parish. Your parish. And I said, I'm inclined to come. But I said, I feel it would be a discourtesy for me to come into your parish without telling you of our intentions. And I said, uh, uh, well, nothing is specifically, categorically finalized. I said, but there's talk of it, see. And I felt I wanted you to know. He said, that's very nice of you, he said. That's very nice of you. He said, tell me, when is the crusade starting? I said, to tell you the truth, I said, we, we haven't finalized it yet. But I said, there is a tentative date. It's the 16th of April. He said, we've got a family service in our church that morning. He said, why don't you come and preach for me? When I went back to David, I said, David, I said, do you know where I am on the opening Sunday? Parish church. He said, what? Could hardly believe his eyes. And, uh, and, the, and the crusade went very, very well, very well. Now, 
I am not saying I'm going to kowtow to the local people. But I get leaflets put through the door by local people. Inviting all the Christians to come to a breakaway place down the road. And oftentimes they haven't put it in my door but in the doors of my churches, of my members. You see. So I go to see them. Two of them came to my house one day, Mr. Shepherd, we've got an, a man coming to preach. We've got a few days free. Could you put him in your church? I said, sit down there. I said, I want to talk to you too. <laughs> I said, and then I, I, I told them, I said, you opened up a place down the road without a buy your leave because you couldn't be happy in another fellowship and you were only 150 yards from it. And I said, and then you start canvassing my members to come. Without a, without a word for me, I had to make inquiries to see who you were. And now, because you've got a preacher coming in a few extra days, you want uh, him to be in my church. I think I said, you know the answer, don't you? <laughs> they certainly did because they left. Now, <laughs> be careful now that you gain nothing by being discourteous. And you'll gain everything by being courteous. There again, quoting Billy Graham, he's been accused of compromise. Even I said to him in Germany, Billy, I said, you're losing friends in Britain because they think you're in league with Rome. He said, I am not in league with Rome. He said, you've heard me preach this week and you should have heard him preaching in Martin Luther country. How he slammed the man who thought that by his sufferings he would be right with God. He said, I can't stop Catholics coming to my meeting. I can't stop bishops telling their faithful, go and hear Billy Graham. He got a degree from a, 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 a gift degree from a university. It was a Catholic university. <gasps> the hue and cry. But if it had been from Cambridge or Oxford and Oxford, university of all places, where there can be a, quite a bit of grime. Oh, that would be fine. Billy's had a degree from Oxford. But Billy is respected. He didn't compromise. I've never heard Billy compromise his message. Not once. I heard him preaching in a prison in Germany. Boy, those, they, if they didn't feel guilty before, they felt guilty afterwards. I'm telling you this because one man came out of a prison one day. He said, I never met so inno many innocent people in my life, he said. As all the prisoners there today. No, Billy never compromises, but he's, he's a gentleman. Billy Graham is a Gentlemen, when the King of Norway invites him to come and listen, to preach in his country, when the Queen of England asks him, call with me on the way back from Australia. I want to know how the crusade went. I get, I get little bits of information that are sub voce, in case you don't know. But I happen to know that the Queen said to Billy, I was deeply moved when I saw those people on Easter Monday coming forward in the Kelvin Hall, she said. Deeply moved. Now, Billy hasn't done that by riding roughshod over a situation. Say, they're all dead. They're... Yes, they're dead. Let me tell you as quickly as I can. I was invited to a crusade down in Chadwell Heath. And the man in charge was an ex-missionary from China. A good man, Colin Walker. But we were going to have a united crusade there. You see, united crusade. And so I said, right, I'll come and meet all the ministers and the workers on a given night. And so I arrived. One of them was... An evangelical vicar, but he had an Anglo-Catholic church. Great image of Christ bending over you. It was frightening, really. But they, they came, and amongst them a congregational minister. And you can't be more dead than a congregational. If I go to a church and I don't notice what kind of church it is, I smell it and I say, this is congregational. <laughs> but I look around. I, with apologies to congregationalists here, if you belong to Gordon Booth's uh, gang, amen. No, no, there's a good congregational. But he was there, you see. And he said, uh, uh, Mr. Shepherd, he said, uh, will you be preaching about hell and uh, that the Bible uh, is literal and, and so on, see? Now I could have said to him, yes, and if you don't like it, lump it. But I knew once I lost him, I would lose all his congregation, you see. I said, sir, I give you my answer. Number one, I've got a self-imposed limit to my ministry, which is to bring Christ to people and people to Christ. Number one, I said. Number two, I said, I'm not the kind of fool to think that theological issues that have divided you for a hundred years are going to be solved in a ten-day crusade. Number three, I said, I promise you to tell you nothing that God has not said. And number four, I said, would you like a, an evangelist this week who in the pulpit says, oh, I better not say this because you are there. I said, do you want that kind of evangelist? 
Oh, I said, no. And I said, that's my answer, sir. Well, the result was, when we got the crusade, he was in, see. And then the people of the congregational were in. Mind you, the heat was too much for him after two days, and I never saw him. But you want to know what happened to his church? A young man got saved. A vile young man. And he went like a domino through the family. Like a domino. His father, his wife, his mother-in-law, his sister-in-law, brother-in-law. Till there were 15 converts in that congregational church. 15 saved. And he knew they were there for weeks. But when I went back, I said to them, where are the converts of that uh, congregational minister's church? Oh, he said, he so slammed them that they've had to go out and uh, be in a mission there. I said, the silly idiot. He didn't know that these were the people who'd pray for him and pay for him and work for him. These were the good quality. But you see how I could have lost all that if I had slammed him. I told him the truth. I've known me to preach in the pulpit and a crusade when the chairman didn't believe in the second coming of Christ. Made no bones about it. But I preached this night on as it was in the days of Noah. So shall be did the crusade. And I could hear him shuffling behind me. And uh, I said, I said, shuffle on, man. Shuffle on. I, I, I wasn't. But, but he was there. And they still talk about the crusade in Tradiga and Nairin Bevan's constituency. We got a bigger crowd in the workmen's hall than he ever got. Now... You understand me now, there's a danger. Fools rush in. There's a, there's a situation. And you have no right to go in. And, 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 and lots of evangelists, they, they draw after themselves a following. Now, by all means, people you've led to the Lord will love you, they'll want to pray for you, they want to know about you. I'm not a prayer letter issuer, but I'm certainly a believer in them. Probably my bad organization, for all I know. But you be very careful, you don't start a cult. Because uh, you're nothing really. You've, you've no right to start. And you've no right to encourage people. To, oh, never mind about that lot. They're dead. You've got life. That is a real temptation. Now here's the last thing I want to say. Temptation for an evangelist. To trade on the gullibility of people. I have to confess. Lots of people in the church are downright gullible. If they prepare to have smoke and psychedelic hypnotic lights in, in a church and in a gospel campaign where I've had to get up before now and go out as a protest because it was so sensual. A man wowing, wowing the congregation as he preached about Christ on the cross. Eh? Mick Jagger, the lip. Oh, I watch them all. I've got them. I know exactly what they're doing. I know exactly what they're doing. Now, there's a gullibility in the church. And before very long, a man may begin to feel, oh, there's no problem here. Now, I've got a man who I admire. He's a, he's a fine young man. He's in my church. I love him. He loves me. He's 1,000% for Christ. But he has got, he, I was telling um, Jem, who's coming to us next week, pray for us, by the way. He, he's a manager, 21 of a big petrol uh, combine. So, you see, he's used to standing and arguing a case before the management. Now he thinks he can bring that into the church, you see. He said, oh, no problem, no problem. Once a, a, a preacher begins to think, oh, it's, it's no problem keeping an audience uh, busy and entertained for an hour, no problem. You heard minister saying, I had them eating out of my hands. He may have traded on gullibility. I was due to speak here today on a subject, so I've been in the house there from after dinner, feeling if I'm going to talk to these men, I've got to talk something significant. Not only true, but significant. Now I know so much, uh, God, uh, forgive me if that sounds boastful, but I've read my Bible through from cover to cover again and again and again and again and again, including Chronicles. I've read, I've read them again and again and again. By the grace of God, I can stand up and say something interesting every time. Even I talk about potatoes, I suppose. But uh, there's a danger when a man begins to think that he can turn up five minutes before the meeting and feel, ah, well, it doesn't take much. And especially in this day when they don't want you to be deep. 
I lecture to students. You would be appalled at what they don't know. I ask simple questions. Who is the, who is the author of Acts and Luke? Never, never, never entered their head. You, 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 you ask such obvious things. They know their Bible. They don't know their Bibles. And what is more, they don't want. When I, I, I was in Filey for years with MWE. I have given Bible readings to young people every morning for a week. And they ran out of Bibles in the shops that week in the stores. And when I asked them to sing a song with me, What a wonderful treasure, gift of God without measure, we will travel together. My Bible and I, it was like a forest with a thousand young people waving their Bibles. And I gave them Bible readings and lasted for nearly an hour. 